Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I am joined by Jill Lane. Jill, how are you? So excited to be here. All right. I'm very excited for you to be here as well. So Jill, go ahead and introduce yourself, give your background, your education, and what you've done professionally, and then what you're doing currently. Perfect. So my name is Jill Lane. I've been in the performance nutrition space for about 20 years. I actually started off in ex-phys and thought I was going to take the clinical route into cardiac rehab and about a thousand blood pressure and EKG readings later, I decided that that wasn't for me. And as a blessing, or at that time, what was a blessing in disguise, there was an amazing dietitian working at this private heart hospital where I was working and doing my internship. And I started to really learn that what I had learned in my undergrad about nutrition, which at that time was all things low fat, everything can be solved by low fat diet, heart disease, you name it, low fat diet was the answer. I started to learn that maybe what I learned in school wasn't really, you know, what was happening out in the general population. So I got a job as a personal trainer, which I swore I was never going to do. And just because I had no clue. Don't we all. (laughs) And honestly, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I, you know, you see firsthand how the choices that we make as people when it comes to training and what we put our mouth and how we handle stress and sleep and everything impacts you physiologically. And the the quandary of it was I was in my 20s and I was living in the Palm Desert, Palm Springs area of California, which at that time, my my client base were all 50 and over, women 50 and Mm. over. So it was a really interesting thing for me to see, you know, how the female physiology changes. And really before any books about adrenal health and their connection to hormones and everything were coming out, I was, you know, seeing what the impact of that was. I was working in a gym and had exposure to some amazing, amazingly well-trained early pioneers of the functional medicine movement. So honestly, I was just blessed to be in the in the right place at the right time. And what that did was help me heal my own issues with my metabolism, which were Hmm. due to underfueling as a student athlete. So I was blessed to go to school and get a couple scholarships, both to a division two and division one school. I played soccer since, you know, at a high level, starting at about the age five, and it wrecked my metabolism. But Hmm. everybody thought that's just what happens to female athletes. And so I used what I was learning with my 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 year old, you know, female clients as a personal trainer, and the early work and just like, understudy blessing, I was getting these functional medicine doctors to help my clients at the time, but also heal myself from I think a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. So now it's just my calling in life to pass it on. I have a performance-based nutrition business in Dallas, Texas. I've been working with high-level athletes for about 15 years, did Gen Pop for about half of that, and now exclusively work with athletes middle school to pro. My business is called Fueling Champions, and I do consulting for businesses, performance centers, teams, and athletes who just want to learn what I want to pass on. So I've been blessed to do that for some nutrition supplement companies in our space, most recently Designs for Sport, which I think is how we met. And so I'm just super pumped to be here to just pass it on because that's really, you know, 20 years into this industry, what what I'm here to do. Yeah, that that's awesome. So I, I have a question just based off of the, the, the background you gave, this concept of functional medicine. 
Mm -hmm. uh, it's very intriguing to me because I would say my introduction to nutrition was not traditional. <laughs> yeah, it just wasn't because it kind of came from the strength and conditioning space. And then I, and then I became traditional through, through my master's degree. But like, there's these kind of things that I learned along the way that kind of still stick in the back of my head. And I actually, a previous guest, Lacey Hall, the episode on probiotics that, that we did, we kind of talked about this as well, functional medicine, because she, that's something she mentioned or more like the holistic med side. So I'm, I'm just curious through your process of kind of repairing your metabolism and things like that. Was there anything that you did or learned that went against kind of what you, what you traditionally were taught or what you, what you learned through school through like kind of that traditional education? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think I almost like to call it integrative approach now. Integrative. Because yes. Of, yeah. Yep. Because out of my, and I think we all do this, I'll say, I know I did it. You know, you learn conventional, you learn the conventional model and then you get out in the real world and you usually understand that that's not translational. Like it doesn't translate mm. to what's really happening in population. So you get exposed to some other sort of, you know, style and you, at least I did, swung way to that, way to that smell <laughs> and you get yep. like, we're oh, kind of a little overboard now is what's on the flip side of that. And then at mm -hmm. some point you learn, okay, there's a balance between the two. There's a, there's a time and place for both. And to me, that's what the word integrative kind of means. Like there's times for both and you as a coach or practitioner, or whatever you figure out, you know, how to integrate both if and when needed. So for me, it was really that, you know, again, I came from a cardiac rehab conventionally trained ex-phys model where you only train a certain, you know, there's no knees over toes guy, you know, in, in ex-phys <laughs> school, you know, there's, it's very, you know, it's just a different model of training. And like I said, you know, I can still to this day, remember my nutrition professor in the front of class, he was probably in his forties fit looking dude. One day talking about how he had a family history of heart disease he had done every low fat thing he could think of, can't, couldn't give his cholesterol down. So he was going to have to start on cholesterol medications to just prevent, you know, a future event. Now, whether or not that was right for him, I, I you know, I, I don't know. It could have been. But what I learned quickly when you get out into the real world is really, you know, all the other things that impact things like cholesterol, stress, hormones, hmm. sugar intake, you know, there's just yeah. so much more to the story. But then- mm -hmm. You know, doing a lot of cardio and eating low fat, which, you know, again, with car with a cardiac rehab background, it was just cardio, cardio, cardio for your heart, low fat, low fat, low fat. And then again, you get out into the real world and you learn that's not quite it. For me, it was more an issue of being underfed. And I don't know that I would say overtrained. I would say under recovered for probably 20 years. Hmm. And I think definitely when I was in the training space, I probably even teetered on some serious orthorexia. Like I had too tight of a grip on all of the concepts I was eating. And, you know, I still see that a lot. And my colleagues, even in 2023, people are just so tight on the things they do to control their own health that it's, um, it's you know, it's a form of disordered eating where you just are so controlled by your choices around training and food yeah. that it consumes you. And so, you know, I, I could say in trying to heal myself, I probably came a bit orthorexic, mm. just so obsessed with yeah. all of the new things I was learning that it was almost too much. And that was a, that's a form of stress to the body because, you know, there's, there's stress that comes from that as well. So like I said, you know, it takes you, it, 
you kind of your pendulum in this industry is the more you get into it and the more you learn from a variety of different people, hopefully should swing from one side to the other. And then you find this middle balance where you can then pick tools from different disciplines to meet the needs of the goals of the clients that you work with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think every everyone goes through kind of that those swings as a professional. You know, I, I would say I went through a very similar thing. I, I guess during grad school, yeah, you're just learning so much and you you really get focused on a few things. And yeah, I mean, I remember my family would have to have a few conversations with me like, Corey, I mean, are you all right? Or like they were almost just kind of like so nervous around what I might think about what we're going to have as a family for, for food. And right. yeah, and then of course you come back to center eventually and you you pick and choose and you you realize things that were probably misguided and and things like that. So I think everyone definitely goes through through those types of things. Um, mm-hmm. Before we get to the topic of the of the day, I do want to briefly mention D- Designs for Sport because you guys just had a summit, and you that was like your second or third year of doing the, doing the summit. And mm-hmm. uh, just briefly, I guess tell tell the listeners what that was all about, how that went, and it, and maybe some things they can look for in the future. Yeah. So, I mean, Designs for Sport is an amazing company who is an arm of a, of a really large company that's been around over 30 years, Designs for Health. And Designs for Health was really founded on education, education for all types of coaches and practitioners around education and this kind of integrated approach. And so Designs for Sport has the same kind of core value or one tenant in its list of core values that being kind of a lifelong learner and continuing to stay in a community of people you can learn from and kind of lift you up and encourage you is important. So we just had our third kind of annual summit where we took different experts and coaches from the industry and got together at Apprentice Hockey Performance, which is a beautiful, amazing facility in Stanford, Connecticut. And one thing that's special about our summits, and if anybody was ever a student of Charles Poliquin, you know, this is something that you'll be familiar with, but there's a lot of training that, a lot of application to the learning, and there's a lot that's of, so learning, awesome. there's a lot of community, and there's a, a ton of great food and you, and coffee on tap, especially at Prentice Hockey. So it was, it was just an amazing time across the yeah. board, you know, and I think what makes our events so special are there's really the people that come. We just have an amazing community. There's an amazing group of coaches and nutrition pros that work in our industry right now that both are leaders and are humble. So, you know, we have guys like Alan Bishop, you know, men's strength coach from the University of Houston, hugely successful. He comes, he teaches, he trains with everybody else and they just lead by example. You know, all of our speakers there did that. And so I can't encourage it enough if you're a strength coach that's been around for a while or someone that's newer in the industry or a nutrition pro or an athletic trainer or a physical therapist who works with athletes or just active population. Those are really the type of people who come to our summits. It's an amazing community, a great place to network, a great place to just get away. We all are so busy in our businesses Mm. and sometimes forget to kind of pour into ourselves. And, you know, we maybe don't get the quality training that we want. Because our days are so busy. <laughs> yeah. I know they just have been else, but already on today. I'm like, what time am I going to train today? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we train hard. Yeah. We eat well. We take a lot of supplements and we learn a ton. And that's really what Designs for Sport is all about. Just yeah. elevate the industry, support the industry and give back as much as we can. That's awesome. And it was uh, it was quite small, right? Was there a cap on the attendees as far as how many? 
we had we were pushing almost about 70 people which was we that's a big group for us because you can imagine you're orchestrating a training in group or so you know we averaged between like i'd say you know 40 to 80 people that was on the bigger side for us so 60 to 70 but that's really the sweet spot for us so it's meant to be a bit smaller a a bit more quaint but you know we yeah quite a few people who wanted to attend this one so we we tried to get as many people Hmm. as we could yeah well those those quaint and more intimate ones are always i feel like the most impactful like the big Mm -hmm. ones are cool to a degree but i think i still have friends that have become some of my best friends yeah and some of my most impactful you know learning experiences were at these smaller ones you're just kind of like you know 50 ish people it's really easy to get to know people and you're training, you're doing the thing, mm-hmm. you're active. And yeah. those are the ones I'll go back. I would go back to in a heartbeat, even if everything was the same as far as content goes. So yep. that's awesome. And yeah, definitely look for for more from the designs for sport in the future. So today, though, our overarching topic is going to be energy availability. And this is a, such a foundational thing in all of well, really life. But when we're talking about performance, it really drives everything. Like, do you have enough energy to not only do the things you need to do from a performance perspective, but then recover and repair yourself from the things you, you've done, whether it's training or, you know, a really hard match or game or whatever it is. So I think where I like to start is just making sure that everyone's on the same page with what the, t- the, the terms are, like what energy availability is. Mm-hmm. And because surprisingly, I think you, as you've mentioned to me, previous or other times is there's still misconceptions about this. Is that right? I think there's a lot for us still to learn and we're still learning it because there's just some crazy nuances about how this impacts metabolism. And we're just always continuing to understand even like how this impacts the microbiome. You mentioned probiotics earlier. And so I think it's always great to have common language, right? So when we talk about something, we all know kind of that we're all kind of treading water in the same direction. Yeah. So what are, what are some, like, in your mind, what are the, uh, the the key things to know from a terminology standpoint? Yeah, so I think it, it's it's weird to do math in this kind of setting that we're in now, but I'm going to spell out an equation. And so get your pen and paper ready. Anybody who came to the <laughs> summit might be laughing right now because we did a ton of math <laughs> my lecture there. And they were like, I thought we were learning about nutrition. I, was, yeah, I said, yes, yes, we are. So <laughs> the availability is really an equation. It's energy intake, so how much calories someone is taking in throughout the day, minus the energy expended from exercise. It equals the available energy you have left, energy availability. What's left is, and again, I'm going to just try to simplify some concepts. What's left is what's used by the body for metabolic daily use. So your BMR, if you will, basal metabolic need. So energy intake minus energy expended for exercise leaves energy availability, the energy that's available and left over for use for your metabolism the rest of the day. And so this is kind of a larger concept. And depending on how long people have been in the industry, that was slightly talked about in the late 90s around something called the female athlete triad. And in that construct, an athlete usually that was female had low energy intake for a variety of reasons we'll we'll get into, but in that construct, it was usually disordered eating. And the consequence of that low energy intake 
or combination of overtraining with low energy intake was this triad effect. So this disordered eating would cause amenorrhea, which is delay or cessation of the menstrual cycle, which then would cause osteopenia osteoporosis. And it was just like this cycle that an athlete could get trapped in. And, you know, that was like mid to late 90s work through ACSM and, you know, the International Olympic Committee, you know, came out with a consensus statement a little bit after. Well, I'm a student athlete of the 90s, 80s and 90s. And so when I mentioned that earlier, that, you know, women were suffering, female athletes were suffering at that time. Due to, you know, I could count on one hand how many periods I would have in a year. And that would happen to me for over a decade. And that was just what happened to female athletes. Yeah. But wondering the reason why I talk about this so much is because it's 2023 and people still think that's what's normal for female athletes. That a female athlete would lose her period. It's okay for a female athlete to have XYZ irregularities. And now the triad is not called something different, but there's a new version of the triad, which now opens, blows it way open. And those of us who have been working in sport, working in the integrative field, have seen this coming. If you see labs and you look at labs where now it's not just women, it includes men. It's not just these aesthetic sensitive sports like gymnasts or dancers who have thought to have this issue. Now it's team sport athletes. Mm -hmm. And it even happened in general population. And a lot of trainers probably see this, especially in their female clients. But I think men do certainly suffer from this, too where they're not eating enough and it's causing some major problems. Right. And so what, what's, the, what's the new terminology? So the new terminology is called REDS, which stands mm -hmm. for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. And so what REDS, again, stands for is if there's not enough available energy left to run daily metabolic need, and in student-athletes, a huge chunk of that goes to growth and development, then the body doesn't have enough energy to do that. And so a whole downstream hormonal effect happens. So let me just walk it back a minute. So the definition of REDS is really just chronic low energy availability. Even though in some of the papers, some of these things can start to happen in less than a week's period of time of having low energy availability. So we usually think, oh, this is like months and months of problems. Now, these, some of these metabolic changes can happen within a period mm. of days. Mm -hmm. Training load is high. Mm -hmm. So in REDS, this is the quirky thing about understanding it, which sometimes is what trips people up. The body will preferentiate the, the calories that are coming in to sport, to training, to competition, to exercise. And then it kind of gives the body the chump change, whatever's left. Huh. And so if there's not enough left for all the metabolic need, cardiovascular health, building and repairing tissue, hormone development, yeah. you know, all the metabolic things, all the things. Yeah, like and the stuff we would typically put in BMR, right? Like the, the keep you alive stuff. Yeah, the keep you alive stuff. The more performance. Then again, the body, you start to have signs and symptoms. Hmm. And so that's reds. And so yeah. if you've been working around athletes for a long time, you should be like, oh, yeah, I've, most people who've been working around athletes for a long time be like, oh, yeah, I've, I've seen this. You know, I've seen when I've been working with an athlete here, she's been training hard, they've been lifting, they've been doing all the things, but there's like a stall in their performance, in their coordination, in their recovery. And, you know, in women, their cycles now start to become irregular in concentration, in, you know, just moodiness, depression, anxiety. Mm. So there's 
Margot Montjoy wrote the International Olympic Committee's consensus statement. She has this beautiful graphic with these colorful dots that really tell you about the performance decrements and then the physiological decrements of REDS. And it impacts every physiologic symptom. It can't system, it can't not cardiovascular, mental health, everything. And then the performance side of it, which is what we all want to know, well, how does it impact performance? Well, if all of your major systems are now being downregulated or, or stressed or suffering because they don't have enough energy to run them efficiently, mm-hmm. it impacts everything from physical to mental. And so coordination, again, depression, hangriness, and just daily energy. And for a student athlete that's yeah. through school day long, that's a problem. And then just adaptation to training, right? And so for strength coaches, sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, I know my program is good, isn't it? You yeah, know, you're like, why? you know, you yeah. messed up somewhere. And that's a tough spot to be in as a coach. Mm. You're like, I swear, I, I really believe in this program I wrote, but they're not getting X, Y, or Z result from it. And oftentimes it's just because the fundamental raw materials aren't there for the two to go together. You know, A plus B equals C to get C. So that's reds. And yeah. So are there any sort of like thresholds here that if someone is a certain level of has a certain level of energy deficiency or deficit calorically for a certain amount of time, it's officially considered reds or is it linked to symptoms? What what's the cutoff here between, oh, I'm just underfueled and I've I've just like short on my calories and and whatever for the day or a couple days? to reds. Is there, is there any definition surrounding that or, or cutoff? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. And when I teach this to student athletes and their parents, which I teach often, because I think mm-hmm. this is the population that is most susceptible because of their high demand for growth and development calories. And now they're, you know, if you work with student athletes, you know, they're training like an obscene amount of time, plus they're not sleeping. So it's very symptom driven. However, in mm. some of the more recent literature, you'll, they're starting to try to attach some number, caloric intake numbers to it. And by, by try to, I mean, it's hard to know yeah. how many calories each person, exact person needs because you need to know fat free mass numbers, you need to know training volume, you need to know what their physiological goals are. Did they start their menstruation yet or not? You know, did they recently have an injury or surgery that means they need more caloric intake? There's a lot of factors. But you'll start to see in some of the data, I believe that right at or around 25 kcals per kilogram of fat-free mass, so 25 calories per, per kilogram of fat-free mass, if you're below that, you're at a higher risk for REDS or just chronic low energy availability. Again, I, you know, I'm not married to some of those, you know, kcals per kilogram bits of data, you know, we use them as a target because like I said, there's so much to know about an athlete or a person to know exactly what their threshold should be. But what I started teaching all the athletes I work with, whether it's an NFL, NBA, or parent and a student athlete is to know, to recognize the signs and symptoms of underfueling. I wish I would have known this because I could have, I saved myself a lot of angst and performed better in school and and a whole host of other things if I would have known. And so it's to just start to notice early if injuries start to pop up and or they're just nagging, they don't go away. You get injured, you feel like now the injury is just like a nagging thing and it won't go away. Do you start to get sick more often? Is there like always some little like thing hanging around from an illness standpoint? Is soreness always kind of like a nagging thing? 
someone having a hard time with focus and concentration, adaptation to training, like I spoke about, adding strength, cardiovascular conditioning, you know, metrics. So just start to notice how you feel, basically. I mean, and this is just a thing for all of us, like start to notice how you feel from what you eat. Is it always exactly correlated with not eating enough food? Not always, but that's an easy, low-hanging fruit place to start and to go, okay, you know, most athletes, athletes especially should be eating three meals and one to two snacks per day and 90% until they've met with someone, you know, like me aren't. And I think it's a responsible thing for us to do as coaches and, and people in place of influence and leadership is just to teach people how they feel when something is off. Hmm. Athletes know what it feels like to not play well because they didn't eat enough or they didn't drink enough. Like they've had a game where that's happened, yeah. but for whatever reason, they don't like blow it up to, okay, well, what is that like? Every day I'm walking around like that. Every day I'm practicing like that. You know, there was a metric that said over 75% of student athletes show up to practice already dehydrated, mostly because they're not drinking enough water in school. And so, and you know, and the pandemic made that worse with drinking fountains closed and everything like Mm -hmm. that. So if you just make people aware, I think this is just a general coaching point of how they feel throughout the day after a good night's sleep, training when they're well fed you know, taking tests when they're well hydrated, just all of those things, then they have some barometer to know when something starts to get askew. Now, women have a a really beautiful built-in metric called our, you know, monthly period or cycle or menstruation. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. guys don't have that, but guys do have hormonal disruption due to low calorie intake. They just don't have a way, you know, a surface level way to examine it. And so women, again, should be taught for sure, without a doubt, that it's not normal to have an abnormal period. Now, the first year or two of a, a female cycle isn't always like textbook clockwork every month. Like sometimes it takes a little bit of time for that thing to kind of get going on, on a regular basis. But the definition of amenorrhea is period beginning after the age of 15 and or losing your period for three months or longer. And if you start talking to a room of high level student athletes or student female student athletes that train and you ask them if either of those two things have happened, you know, over half the room will raise their hand. And so that's why I'm so this is just such a personal topic for me because I experienced it. But also yeah, I think there's a lot of health and wellness things happening in our teenagers, athlete or not right now, that if we yeah. could just dial up rest, recovery, hydration eating decent foods, you know, I think it would serve them, uh, you know, on a bigger, greater level outside of performance. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt about it. It's so prevalent with, with female athletes that they're irregular or they lose their period. We had a previous guest, Ashton Colmoose. She talked about that when she was a softball athlete. She's like, I just thought it was normal. No, no mm-hmm. one told me this wasn't mm-hmm. really supposed to happen. And, and Part of me was somewhat relieved, but then again, like, I wish I would have known it wasn't normal. I wish, no. I wish that I, I would have like, that could have been something that I, I looked at right away and thought, okay, I, am I doing enough what, uh, what I need to do from a, uh, an intake standpoint? I do want to talk about like a, a oh, sorry, it's whatever you raise it, that's still like a, a weird thing to talk about. Like daughters and mothers still have a, a hard time. Mm-hmm. It's like a, I don't want to use the word taboo, but it's like, it's like talking about your bowel movements and your like yep. it's just a, a weird conversation you know yeah. and so yeah. i just wish we could get to the point where it's it was 
very normalized. And I think it was the Rio Olympics. There was a female swimmer who won, I think, a gold medal. And in her interview after, she actually said something like, I swam really fast. I was on my period. Like she talked about it. And there's actually potentially some research that there's a potentially a reason that that could actually be the case if you follow some of the work of Dr. Stacy Sims. And so yeah, yeah. Um, I wish, you know, the more and more we talk about it, the more we make it less taboo and the more women are comfortable speaking about the challenges around their period and understanding what it means and getting help for some abnormal symptoms or excessive PMS or the fact that it's been gone. You know, I've sat down with a lot of these young women and in my meeting with them and their mothers, the first time their mom finds out that their period hasn't been normal. And it's yeah. just like heartbreaking as a mom of two daughters, you know, I, that's just, you know, that's a wish of mine through this work is that we can just make it a normal thing. Just like anything else that happens with our body that we talk about and women are lucky that they have this kind of exterior barometer. You don't, you know, women can still have reds or some, you know, level of issue with energy availability and have their period. So it doesn't mean everything is good to go. Sure. But it's certainly uh, a tool that can be used yeah. to your yeah and as a as a father of a of a little three-year-old girl and another another girl on the way i i hope that our family is like that like i hope we can talk openly and i i keep i keep referring to previous guests but that's just such a good segue or such a good they, they tie in so by the time this releases the episode with dr abby smith ryan will have will be up and yeah. uh, we actually talk in that episode about normalizing this talk. And uh, actually, <laughs> even in Lacey Hall's episode, we yeah, in this industry. So I love yeah. that. Yeah. And even in Lacey Hall's episode, we talked about normalizing poop talks. So yes. we're normalizing all the talks with the performance. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so talk about like the prevalence of this at the high levels, because, oh, you know, with with high school athletes and even collegiate to a degree, it's like, OK, we somewhat get it because schedules are crazy. Um, you're running around like all the time you you don't have access maybe to the you know you're kind of relying on parents or you're relying on what the what your school offers even you're you're limited by finances or something like that but then this isn't like a non-issue at a high level sport either so talk about what you've seen there and then i think it'd be kind of interesting if just briefly touch on the, the blood markers you've seen regarding this yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to remember, and I know this sounds silly to say, is that elite level pro athletes are people first. And so mm. sometimes we, you know, and rightfully so, have them up on a pedestal thinking they have all this money or they have all this time. And so surely they would never have an issue with any of this kind of basic stuff. But you'd be surprised, you know, they have challenges as well. And and they have the same confusion that the student athlete or gen pop population is because they're also on social media. And so yeah. I credit a lot of this confusion to the fact that just the diet culture and influencer space, not that all the influencers are wrong or bad, but what they're saying does not apply to sport. And so that's where the confusion is coming in. So there are a lot of high level pro athletes that are pressured male that are men that are pressured to be a certain way and look a certain way, whether it's for their position or just because they should look X way because they're an NBA player or whatnot. And so they fall victim to, just like student-athletes, just like general population, to the swipes and the things that they see on mm. social media. And it plays in their head, too. They have a psyche, just like the rest of us, that causes some confusion. And they go down rabbit holes and traps that they don't have the right people around them about, you know, stuff that might be right for a woman, a 35-year-old woman who doesn't have kids and doesn't doesn't really train or maybe is just starting to train a couple days a week, 
what she could do and what this high-level athlete should do are oftentimes, you know, different things. And so that's the first thing, just remembering that there are people too that can get confused and, and fall down, you know, rabbit traps on yeah. social media and they have families. And so they have families, they have kids, there's snacks. I mean, you have a three-year-old, I have three kids, there's snacks around that might be best for them to not get into, or there's a pregnant wife who's got some crazy cravings and they're dipping into some of that extra stuff. And so I think in the end is just remembering that there are people too, and that there's challenges with having a high profile job that's exposed to, you know, everybody and their brother and what they do and that they have a real life where they have the same challenges as the rest of us. So that's important to know. But I think because of that, so, you know, they don't have the same challenges as student athletes where they're sitting in school all day long and they don't have a say so in being able to get up and eat or get water, you know, but they do sit in meetings depending upon their sport. But but there usually are some, you know, graces to them saying, well, yeah. I drink it and having food around that they can get. And so they have challenges, but they're a little bit different. So, I mean, I think where, where the elite level athlete starts to get in a trap is that is stress. So if you ever work with elite level athletes, you will know just the amount of stress that they're under to three things. So in my business, I work with elite level athlete. There's three things that are most important to them. Availability. If you're not available for your team, you're no good for your team. So you have to always be available. You have to be yeah. well. You have to not be hurt or it's the next man. Every league is yeah. like that. So you have to be <laughs> available. And then when you're available, you have to perform. So when they call your number, when you get subbed in, if you're starting, whatever, you have to perform. And then the third is you have to do that for as long as you possibly can. So in my in my consulting business, it's availability, performance, and longevity. Those are the three things we focus on. Now, in that is speed and you know all the things you need to do all of that. But those three things are extremely stressful for an elite level athlete. You know, you're only as good as your next contract that you sign or your next game. Or there's another person that can fill your spot. You know, you're amongst now the one to 2% of athletes in your space. And the differentiation between you and the next man or woman is slight. And so there's a lot of stress. Some athletes know how to handle that. They know how to use that. They've done, you know, mental training work, breath work, all the things to know how to utilize that to their advantage. And some haven't. And so those things all impact physiology. You know, how you handle stress, the type of stress that you have. And then you focus, you funnel that all into, okay, are there any needs by the team for you to return to play, get your body composition in check? Maybe you haven't been playing as well lately. How do you get out of that funk? Maybe it's a contract year for you and you basically need to have the best year you've ever had to get another paycheck for your family for the next one, two, three, four, five years. And so it's just a different level of stress, right. which impacts them. And so now put onto that, what, if they're not eating enough of the right food, And every team and every league is different. The type of professionals they have working on their performance team. Some are very in the weeds on nutrition with their athletes from testing to the food they have provided to having a lot of different options. So if someone wants to eat gluten-free or dairy-free or whatnot, and some are not so much. They may or may not have a nutrition professional on site. It may just be up to the strength coaches who are very talented and great people and who also, you know, in a football team of 52-ish or 60 guys, that's a lot of people to keep track of. So there's a lot for the pro athlete to kind of wrap their hand around when you, they get to that level. And staying no there is easy. You have to get there and then you have to stay there. 
So the metrics I've noticed, you know, before REDS became a thing, because of my integrative training, when a guy would bring me their labs from their blood, you know, their their team physical, I, I just reference males at, at this point because I predominantly work with males in the in elite and pro space. Yeah, mm-hmm. it would start to look like, I think what I mentioned earlier, or when we've chatted before, low testosterone, high cholesterol, low thyroid, and then, you know, the, the typical stuff we always see now, low vitamin D just like a little bit of undernourishment, B12 is low. And so at the team level to ZYA, you know, if someone has high cholesterol, that's, a, you know, 15, 12, 15 years ago, that was a staffing prescription mm-hmm. because they didn't want anybody potentially coming back on them after their career was over or even during their career and saying, hey, this is standard of care in medicine when you have high cholesterol and you didn't do this, when I see that lab, I say, okay, these are 20 year old elite level athletes with, you know, low body fat. There's right. that high cholesterol is not really the problem. That's just the symptom of something else that's going on. And in, in my interpretation, it was a combination of reds and just chronic stress and under recovery. So once you deal with all of that, that stuff all fixes itself. So those are some of the labs you yeah. start to notice. You know, inflammatory markers, you know, C-reactive protein and all of that stuff starts to trend up over time. But then as a as a coach, you have to tease out what is the cause of this? Is it low energy availability or is it some form of under recovery? I don't use the word overtraining a lot, but I feel like that's reserved for the endurance athlete space. You know, most team sport athletes have ample time to recover. Yeah. It's just that they're choosing not to do all of the things for recovery. And so they usually are in an under-recovered space than an overtraining space. So I, that's just part of the reason why I use that verbiage. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's turn to some action steps that, that coaches and, and trainers can take. Because like most people listening to this podcast, they're going to be strength and conditioning coaches, personal trainers, maybe dietitians, nutritionists. And I guess, you know, I just am listening to you talk about like the 50, 60 guys on a football team. And like, so I, I used to coach at an oh. NAIA school, our football team, and this is actually pretty small, was like maybe 110. Mm-hmm. But I know D3 coaches or their football team's 200, and that's just yep. one team. And then, you know, most D3 NAIA schools, two th- half to two thirds of the entire school are athletes. I know you've seen these situations before, but, but really, like, unless you get Power 5 D1, the vast majority of strength coaches are, are in that scenario mm-hmm. even like if you're even like you know division two division one yep. smaller division one so let's talk about like what first of all like what are some maybe like base level things that everyone should be kind of thinking about doing and then signs and things that's things to look for um and some good action steps that coaches can take yeah first really a quick a note on those statistics you just said so i have the utmost respect for my dietetics colleagues in the space but the bottom line is there's not enough to go around mm. you just said it and so because of that, strength coaches should have, and I, I actually think it's a non-negotiable, solid working knowledge of the basic foundational aspects of performance nutrition, because there's not a nutrition professional on staff and yeah. they, it's critical that they know. And so, you know, I think that rubs some people wrong in my industry, but the bottom line is it would be great if each of these schools had a talented, integrative dietitian or nutrition pro, but the reality is there isn't. There's not in the private sector and the performance centers. And so because of that, 
the front line of healthcare are strength coaches and personal trainers, and they should have and need to have basic foundational knowledge of the key core tenets of nutrition and recovery and like wellness and stress management, because there's just not enough nutrition pros to go around. Right. So I just have to get that out there because some people don't like it. I'd just be honest that strength coaches and, and trainers might be teaching and educating on stuff. But the bottom line is there's just they don't have a they don't have a companion to do it for them. So no, we can sit on our hands and pretend like we shouldn't do it or we can just pass out some good, solid, basic info and try to help the population and help these athletes and their wellness and their care and their performance. And so that's the right thing to do, which is why I teach a lot to that population, because I feel like they should know that info. Yeah. Um, so like some of the basic. So back to your like, what do you do in a group? <laughs> Basically, I think hey. maybe first question, we have limits of resources, especially you always usually a strength coach or sometimes a personal trainer. How do you impact a group of young men and women to make a change? Because, again, like you said, these are oftentimes college athletes who don't have a lot of money. Maybe they might not be on the food program at school. They might have limited resources or very little education themselves about nutrition. They might not even know the basics of like what's protein, like what yeah. have protein in them. Mm-hmm. And so for me, and I teach this when I teach for my student athletes, the number one thing is to always know their why. I had a great discussion with a strength coach after our summit about this from a, from a uh, school. He was asking this question. So you're all, everybody listening to this and watching is in a place of leadership and influence in the work that you do. The best way to get someone to take action is to know their why. Why is it important to them that they're on that team? And what is their goal? Like, what are their goals? That's what, they, what I mean by what's their why. Are they trying to get sure. more minutes? Are they trying to get stronger? Are they trying to be faster? They really want to beat XYZ team. Did you make up to the playoffs but quite get there? Is that a team goal? Like, what are the goals of the team and that person in particular? So that when you then try to teach them a concept or encourage them to do an action, you can tie it back to that goal. There's one thing I'll tell you, and we can just look across the world's population of obesity, epidemic and everything, is that people aren't doing anything because it's healthy for them. So try to teach someone to do X because it's healthy is not a strategy that works anymore. Maybe we're going to get a little extra from that post-pandemic if that's if we're in post-pandemic. I don't know where we are these days, but that might mean something a little different to people now because of the pandemic. So you might get a little traction with that maybe in Gen Pop now. But student athletes and athletes don't do things because it's healthy for them. So right. I almost never use that word in my yeah. business because it doesn't, your definition of healthy, my definition of healthy, and my neighbor's definition of healthy and NFL's definition of healthy and a six-year-old woman's who is a cancer survivor definition of healthy is all different. So it doesn't mean anything. So I think we should try to stray away from using just these words that don't really mean anything to people and try to get to something that means something with the person yeah. they work. So yeah. if you know they're just off an injury and getting them back on the field is what's like really important to them because it's their senior year and they want to be able to get some games in that year then you know that's their driving force. What you teach them and how you encourage them should be all around. So if they knew that eating breakfast or eating, getting a couple eggs or some protein in at breakfast was going to help them with that because it helps with repair and the strengthening for all the work they're doing in the gym or in rehab. And you try to tie it together and make it very meaningful to, again, the little bubble of world they live in, then you can create some movement and change. So when you teach a big group of people, 
you can have them just like write a couple things down or you can have them put it in their notes on their phone or think of like one, like, hey, if you have 50, if I had 110 football athletes in front of me right now, I would say, hey, right now in your head, I want you to think of for the next 30 days, one of the most important things that you're trying to accomplish around your athletics, your performance, your off-season training. Think of one thing. Okay. And then I would teach them a nugget and I would tie it back to that. You know, all just protein is always a low-hanging fruit, but protein helps with everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> we all have <laughs> all the world's problems. And so you can talk about protein or hydration or, you know, the common things in student athletes is not eating enough, not eating breakfast and not eating before practice, staying hydrated and getting enough sleep. So chances are, if you teach on one of those tenants, it'll tie back to them achieving that goal. And then you just have to keep reinforcing it. And in a group that big with limited resources, if you can teach them one or two or three things over the course of a season, then you've won. You've done a good job. Sometimes we feel like we have to do it all, but it's just like yeah. not even A, possible, and B, it, you don't need to do it all. If you can get people doing, getting an extra hour of sleep, these student athletes are or anybody staying well hydrated throughout the day, you know, training up their breakfast, eating breakfast or adding protein to breakfast and eating before something before they come to practice, like, and, you know, maybe eating like a veg at dinner or at lunch, like you're winning as a coach. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Those little things add up. Um, sure. And so that's what I would say. That when you have to teach in a group and even when you teach on one on one, that is a great approach with limited resources. Yeah, that I, I 100% agree with that. And what's good about the more, I guess, modern nutrition education is that that's bleeding into it. Whereas I think, yeah. 15 ish years ago, it was just like, either want to do it or you don't. And right. if you don't do it, you're lazy. But we, we now know it, it's got to be tied to some, some deeper motivation. So that, that's a great point. How about, you know, when, when coaches are, are observing their athletes, when they're kind of watching and or measuring their performance, are there any specific signs and symptoms that coaches can be looking for that mm -hmm. might indicate there's an energy availability issue? And yeah. yeah, cause, cause that can get muddy. Cause like, of course you just mentioned all that, like, there's so many things that can go into this, whether it's lack of sleep or maybe it's or maybe stress, but I'm just curious, is there anything that might be a little more specific to the, the issue of energy availability and mm -hmm. yeah, just some things that coaches can keep an eye on. Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. And that is a bit of a slippery slope. I mean, I think the most obvious one is if you know you have a gifted and talented athlete that has all the skills, traits, training, conditioning, all the things, and they're just something is causing them from a performance standpoint to just go downhill. They're just not performing well. The first thing I check in on is food, then sleep, then stress to see like what's going on. I think the old school model, as you mentioned, is that if little Jimmy or Susie isn't playing well, they're lazy, they're not giving it their all, you know, and but the reality is these days that uh, little Jimmy, and little Susie probably aren't giving it their all because it's four o'clock after school. It's 90 degrees out and they haven't eaten a solid meal since dinner the night before. They didn't have time for breakfast. Lunch is only 20 minutes in most middle school and high school. So they barely got through their lunch and they didn't have time to eat anything when they were changing in the locker room to go out to practice. When I talk to strength coaches and trainers who own their own performance centers, who really believe themselves in the power of, of performance nutrition and the impact it can make and how important fueling is, I tell them then you have to make it known that that's part of how you get results and part of yeah. how your team wins in a team setting. And so you have to talk about it a lot. 
you know, strength and conditioning is now embedded part of performance and teams winning, I would say. Nutrition is, and so the more the staff, Hmm. the coaches, the athletic trainers, the physical therapists are all talking about the importance of nutrition and it's part of the culture, for lack of a better word, the more that the athletes and the clients of it's gen, in Gen Pop know, oh, this is part of how we win and get results and recover and are a little bit better and achieve our goals. So it has to be talked about. It can't be this like this tiny little room over here where the dietitian and nutrition pro meets with people from time to time or, you know, the secret little area. It has to be like part of how yeah. you win and get results, which means it has to be talked about. That way, with if a player X isn't doing well and you pull them aside and say, hey, man, like, did you hit the snacks before? It's not like a, a surprise thing out of left yeah. field because now your whole system has talked about that being a part of the puzzle piece to get results. And so I can't emphasize that enough. I think I think there's a ton of coaches who use nutrition and nutrition pros who use nutrition for themselves and their family. But when they get into their place of business and their performance center, their training, their team, they don't talk about it as much. They're not, they don't have what they do out in, to share with people that it's not infiltrated in how, again, their culture and how they get results. And so because of that, when you want to bring it up and ask a client or a, an athlete about it, it's coming out of left field instead of hmm. being, oh, yeah, OK, yeah, you know what? I had to go to study hall during my lunch period to make up time from our road trip last week and I didn't eat my lunch. And that's so now you're teaching them to connect the dots. You're, you know, it goes back to where we started. And so just make it a part of your culture that that's how you win or that's how you get results, depending on what area of the industry you yeah. work in. So that if you are going to bring it up and ask, like, hey, even if you're just a, a trainer working doing body comp in a, an amazing training facility, if you're going to ask, you know, Mary, yeah, Mary, you know, like normally you can lift this. I know say like, what's up? Did you get your food in? And she might say, oh yeah, but I didn't sleep well last night. You know, these things aren't at a left field when you yeah. ask your clients and athletes about it. Yeah. And it also, it also just takes a long time for that stuff to just click. You know, it's gotta mm-hmm. be, it's got, it's repetition. It has to be mentioned like by everyone, number mm-hmm. one, like you just mentioned, mm-hmm. but you know, coaches and I felt this way. I'm like, gosh, am I just Am I just beating a dead horse here? Am I just like talking to deaf ears? But I mean, even think about yourself personally, most of the time you need to hear something multiple times, maybe before it clicks or maybe before you really understand it, or maybe it's said in a certain way that makes sense to somebody. And to the point of athletes, when you do, when you do that, you know, when you pull them aside or when you ask them about things, you know, quite frankly, they may not be truthful with you the first time or the first mm-hmm. few times. Okay. So just kind of like understanding that it, it is a, is a process and yeah, the more united front you can be with everybody, obviously, yeah, the better. And I think if athletes know that it's coming from a place of knowing that there are people first and that you're care the most about their performance. And especially if you like tap into something that they care about, on an individual basis, like Jill mentioned earlier, I think they'll understand if you're a broken record. <laughs> Hopefully they would anyway. You know, what's so. funny in the, in the sales world, in the business mm. world, there's data that shows it takes seven to 12 exposures of you talking to somebody about something you're trying to influence them about for them to, you know, make yeah. a choice. 
And so I think the only time, the time that that can be go down is if you have an immediate need to solve a problem they have. And so it mm-hmm. goes back to knowing their why. And so to your point, it isn't one time is probably not enough unless you have an, you have an immediate solution to something that they're really struggling with. And that's involved with their why. Otherwise, again, it just has to be something that's, again, and it's, you want to just be casually bringing things up. You know, you're not, you know, I teach four things in my approach to nutrition, especially with student athletes. The first is that it's about consistency, not perfection. We're yeah. never expecting perfection with nutrition, just like you're not you're not expecting to make every three-pointer you practice at practice. You're just throwing up as many as you can. Most will go in, some will miss. Nutrition is the same. You're not trying to be perfect with everything. I think that just creates more orthorexic people. We're just trying to do the best we can as often as we can and create some consistent habits that help us move towards our goals. Yeah. The second is that you add before you take away. And so going back to how you teach, you know, oftentimes parents will be like, yeah, I'm going to send you to see this lady with the hopes, fingers crossed, she's going to tell you you're not supposed to go to Chick-fil-A and Whataburger and all that stuff. If you're in the South, you know, that is, I'd say like In-N-Out or whatever your favorite hamburger place is. (laughs) But that's not how I teach because all that does is create a bigger caloric gap. It actually exacerbates reds that might already be there. If I don't have something to immediately fill those calories I'm pulling away, then now I've made the problem worse before I've made it better. So look for things to add first people psychologically would rather add something than take something away anyways yeah. <laughs> what you can do versus what you can't do yeah. yeah yeah exactly so we focus on those two things and just always try to you know just see that people have their own challenges and there's yeah. gonna be a lot of times we don't know what's going on behind the scenes we're just encouraging we're we're just always hopping on consistency we're talking about it in the culture of what we have going on at our team or in private sector or in our one-on-one business, whatever way you do work, you lead an influence, then people will just, after some exposure and after even seeing from the sideline, watching other people experience, and the more you can get it dialed into their why and their acute needs and goals, both in like 30-day chunks and, and longer season chunks, the more you can have influence over helping people learn new things and, and achieve their goals through nutrition as a tool, along with the strength and conditioning and, and the rest of the disciplines that should be in performance. So yeah. um, consistency and not perfection, add before you take away, no fighting over food. You know, I say this in jest because in my house, you know, and I know what it's like for student athletes, but, you know, even couples might eat differently. And so it's like, let's not fight over food. Let's just agree to agree that everybody has a different way they can utilize food. You know, I've come a long way it, coming from a very strong integrated medicine background or integrative training background that I wouldn't say there's a place and time for everything. I don't really believe in this word. There's balance and everything has its place. But I mean, I do think that, you know, we can have a, a little bit of a looser grip than, hmm. you know, we might believe with sure. our social media, with what we eat and still be able to achieve our health and wellness and performance goals. I mean, in my, when I teach in my group classes, you know, as, as, And anybody that may be listening to this, and like I gave the example of teaching in a group, at the forefront, before I start into my curriculum, I have anybody, whoever the population is watching, parents and student athletes say, be looking for two things. Over the next like 30 or 40 minutes, I'm going to go through kind of like my top five things I teach everybody to master. Be looking for two things that you can add or change. Um, So that way people are also more engaged and looking for those things they can be doing. So there's just little tips and tricks for teaching that can help people 
try to convey a message, yeah. especially when you're trying to convey it to a large group. I like to teach in large groups because I feel like I can impact more people, you know, in a 45 minute period of time than one on one in an hour. And so I teach a lot in groups. And so yeah. the more you can upfront, you know, little things like that when you teach, the more you can get like some engagement and people actually paying attention to yeah. what you're teaching. No doubt. That's a great point. That's just another another added layer of individualization you can add, you know, that, you know, again, engages people, kind of perks, peaks their interest right away. And then they, like you said, can stay engaged throughout the entire time you're teaching. So, Jill, this has been some great stuff. If people want to follow you, learn more about you and you may potentially look into your consulting services, where can they go? Thank you so much, Corey. This has been super fun. You can go to my site, just jilllane.com. That's three L's in a row jilllane.com or on Instagram. I'm, I try to get better on social media. One of these days I'll do it, but it's at Team Fueling Champions, at Team Fueling Champions. I usually respond to DMs if you hit me up with a question there or you want maybe some of the references I mentioned, I can shoot you a link there. I think if you work in this space, there's two or three main reference papers on REDS. Everybody in this space should read just to understand and have working knowledge of the concept. It's up to us to funnel this back up the chain to athletic training, physical therapy, pediatricians, sports docs, because for whatever reason, it's not enough on the powers of being the medicine side of this. They don't they don't know enough about it yet. Yeah. And so really serve our student athlete population in particular. I think those of us on the front lines, especially strength coaches and trainers, but nutrition pros should just read a couple, two or three of these references and just understand the concept to be yeah. helpful to people you work with. Okay. Awesome. Well, Jill, that you're definitely given a lot today. So I appreciate you so much for your time and uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.